Take your Bible as we uh, seek to give at least some thoughts or comments on the questions that were turned in, even if we maybe can't be as thorough or as exhaustive uh, as we'd like to be. All right, first question says this. Uh, In this morning's message, you seem to indicate that there was only one gospel. In Matthew 10, Jesus commanded his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the house of Israel only. Was this not a different gospel that Paul preached to both Jews and Gentiles? A very good question, excellent question. And the answer to that is both yes and no. And let me explain what I mean. The word gospel, Greek word euangelion, simply means good news. So the term can be used, I just was handed this, I mean literally right before the service started, so I didn't have a chance uh, to do this, but I would like to just go and look at how often the term euangelion is used in the New Testament, because my guess is it's used in a variety of ways, because the word just means good news. Uh, And in Matthew 10, the good news that Jesus sent his disciples to proclaim to the lost sheep of the house of Israel was specifically good news about the coming kingdom. Jesus came offering the kingdom just as John came offering the kingdom. So the good news is that the kingdom that was promised throughout the Old Testament is still being offered to Israel. So that was good news. So in a sense, you could say that there that was a different message. Yes. So in answer to your question, that was a different message than what Paul preached because Paul's euangelion, or good news, was the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ who has died and risen again. So yes, in that sense, you could say it's different. But the point of this morning was... Uh, In Galatians, Paul is arguing that there's only one gospel that is preached to both Jews and Gentiles, only one saving gospel, because the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 10 wasn't necessarily, uh, it it was a get your heart right because the kingdom's being offered to you. Repent because the kingdom's being offered. Uh, So uh, it, it was a different message. And you could even say, in a sense, that the gospel in the Old Testament had a different content to it because it was proclaiming a coming Messiah, whereas now what we proclaim is that the Messiah has come. But what you don't want to get into, and this is what some do who who recognize these distinctions, uh, they start defining uh, or trying to assert that there are different paths of salvation. Some would even go to the extent of which is wrong. Well, in the Old Testament, you're saved by keeping the law. In the New Testament, you're saved by Christ which is utterly false. So that's what you need to be careful of. So the point is this. When you just see the term gospel, you need to see how the term is being used in its context because it just means good news. But when Paul uses it in the technical sense in the book of Romans and Galatians, the gospel, without any further definition, it is the gospel. He is talking about the message that saves Jew or Gentile or any person. And there is only one gospel and that is the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even when the apostles were sent out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, it was, hey, the good news is the kingdom is being offered to you, but you need to repent and get your heart right. You need to get your heart ready to be right with God. So, um, again, that's why I say in answer to your question, you could say yes and no. Yes, it was the, the content of the message was different, but no, Jesus wasn't suggesting there are different paths or different ways of salvation you can be saved through works, or you can be saved through this, and then you can be saved this way. Uh, that is very clear because Paul, in more than one place, points to Genesis fifteen six 
to prove that salvation has always been by grace through faith. He points to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So salvation has always been by grace through faith, uh, but now we have a more completed information to place faith in now that we understand the death and resurrection of Christ. So Abraham believed God when God made him a promise, and he believed and he was justified or credited with righteousness. He didn't believe at that time, Genesis 15, 6. He wasn't saying, oh, I understand Jesus of Nazareth will be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die on the cross, be raised from the dead, and then ascend to the right hand of the Father a number of days later. Abraham didn't know all of that, but he just believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So there's only one path of salvation, Old Testament, New Testament. It's by grace through faith. It's just that in the New Testament era, there's more complete content to understand that you place faith in. All right, next question says this. As a Christian man, husband, and future father, what should be my perspective on concealed carrying, in other words, carrying a concealed weapon, and self-defense? I desire to protect and take care of my family, but I don't want to trust in my own self. What is the biblical worldview of being proactive, but also being prepared while trusting the Lord? Well, a great question. I appreciate your heart in ask, asking it, and I don't want to disappoint you, but uh, I will say this. It's not going to be an easy road for you to wicker through this one. It's not going to be easy at all because um, Christians have wrestled with this for decades, centuries, actually, uh, and still don't always land at the same point. This is very, this isn't identical, but this comes back to the similar issue of should all Christians be pacifists, that is, not involved in military, and some very godly Christians take that point of view, and others, other godly Christians uh, say that, no, we don't believe biblically that there is a mandate to be a pacifist. Uh, this falls kind of in that category, and uh, it's not an easy issue. If it were an easy issue, uh, then all Christians would believe exactly the same on it. But you say, well, what is the biblical worldview? I kind of smile at that and say, well, that's like asking, what is the biblical worldview on the extent of the atonement? If you know Christianity, you know that some Christians hold to limited atonement and some hold to unlimited atonement, and that's still a topic that is wrestled with and debated. A godly men and women on both sides, godly scholars on both sides, so I appreciate you wanting a biblical worldview, but uh, it's not going to be an easy path or course to try to wrestle through that one. Uh, I'll just kind of briefly give you the arguments on both sides. Uh, on the side that would say you, you, you should not... Uh, try to do things like carry a gun to protect your family, etc. Uh, people would point to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you know, if they compel you to go one mile, you go two. If they ask for your, uh, you know, a garment, you give them your coat. And, and you, you're familiar with that. And turn the other cheek, etc. And uh, there are those that would say that is Jesus' instructions to us. And that trumps everything else so that uh, it, it trumps any idea of Romans 13 that the government has the right to uh, defend and the government has the right to punish, etc., because uh, therefore a Christian should never be in a government role. In other words, you cannot be a Christian who pulls the switch to electrocute someone because you would be violating the Sermon on the Mount. So that would be one view. The other view would say, no, Romans 13 clearly gives government the right 
to inflict punishment. They don't bear the sword in vain. And so if it's not a personal vendetta, but it's a, a law issue, a legal issue, in other words, you can be a Christian soldier, you can be a Christian policeman, and you're not violating anything because it's not like you're acting in, you know, in vengeance towards someone personally. You're upholding the law. And of course, when it comes to this issue that you're wrestling with, in our country, the law allows you to sort of be an extension of the law so that if someone breaks in your house and is trying to kill your family and you shoot them legally, you're not liable. Uh, so the law grants that. So some would say, well, that's just a part of Romans 13, that God has established government and laws and, and gives uh, opportunity for, for defense of innocent people, etc. And so that would be the other side. Uh, so those are sort of the two sides of the argument. And as I said, there are godly people on both sides. Uh, personally, um, this, this particular one is not, uh, well, neither of them are easy for me. But I would say it is, for me personally, in my own conscience, I could be a Christian soldier. I could be a Christian policeman. And I would, it wouldn't violate my conscience if I were acting as government officials to uphold the law, and therefore I don't bear the sword in vain. But this one is not as easy for me to wrestle through because it goes beyond that you are an agent of the government. This is, this is somewhat personal. Someone's breaking into your house. Now, again, I understand the argument, but the government grants you to be an arm of them to uphold the law. So you're not violating the law, etc. So I understand that. But, uh, so I come back to where I started in answering the question, whoever happened to ask this, Appreciate your desire to want a biblical worldview, but if the, the biblical worldview were really simple and easy, there wouldn't be such diversity in the body of Christ, which there has been, as I said, for decades and even centuries. So uh, it's a tough question to wrestle through. Appreciate you wanting to wrestle through it biblically, but those are some of the issues you just need to wrestle through and think through. And, uh, you know, wherever you land, which wherever you land on it, you're going to land somewhere where other Christians disagree with you. Just understand that. That's okay. We can disagree in the body of Christ and still put a blanket of love over it. That is, love one another. Um, but it's a, a good question you ask, a difficult one, uh, not an easy one to sort through. But those are some of the issues to wrestle through. All right, next question says this, Matthew chapter 7. So turn to Matthew 7, this familiar passage And of course, in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the question is this. If they didn't know Jesus, which is clear they don't, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. We never had any relationship. So if they didn't know Jesus, were they lying with this claim? Or will they be? Because this is future Jesus is describing what's going to happen in the future. So if they didn't know Jesus, were they lying? Or can you do these things without knowing Christ? You see the dilemma a person is wrestling with. And we don't know because Jesus doesn't tell us. But the implication is, uh, I don't think the, the, just the tone of the tenor of the, the text would indicate that they're lying. They, they, Jesus words this in such a way that they'll be shocked. So it's not like they are totally lying, deceitful, and so they're not going to be shocked. They're, they think they're in. So uh, it comes back to your question. If they don't know Jesus, were they lying? Probably not. The doesn't seem to be the indication. Or can you do those things without knowing Christ? 
And the answer would be yes. Some of those things certainly can be done because uh, Satan is the great counterfeiter. I mean, uh, all you have to do is look at his original sin. And what was his original sin? I will be like God. Most people don't realize that Satan's original sin was not, certainly was going against God, but his original sin was wanting to be a rival to God. So anything God does, Satan wants to counterfeit. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians there are counterfeit apostles. Uh, Revelation indicates there are counterfeit assemblies or churches. Uh, he has counterfeit doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1, in the latter days, the Spirit expressly says that there will be doctrines of demons and even names one of the doctrines of demons, forbidding marriage and, and forbidding the eating of things that God says is okay to eat. So two of the doctrines of demons are very popular in our day in religion, that you shouldn't get married. I mean, you, obviously, I mean, you're thinking without even having to say it. Do you know any religion that of a major aspect of their religion is that, that if you're, you know, really serious about the Lord, you can't get married and that you can't eat certain foods? I mean, it's, I mean, that has Catholicism written all over it. So there are doctrines of demons. Uh, so I don't think that they're lying here. I think that they were enabled to do those things in a demonic way. Or here's the other possibility. I thought about this throughout the afternoon. It, it is amazing to me that, that people who are in this movement, let me pause there for just a second, just say this, little side note. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that these words by Jesus probably don't even target people who lived in the second century or third century or fourth century or fifth century? I mean, look at church history and what, the, the, what section of church history do we have the church, and I'm using the term very broadly, the church majoring on signs and wonders and miracles? It's our era. It's our era. I mean, the reformers never went around claiming that they were raising the dead and casting out demons, all that. This is our era. So it's amazing to me that these words have more application to this era than ever before. And if I were, and, and please don't misunderstand this, I'm just saying it, I want to say it as gently as I can, but if I were in the charismatic movement, these words would frighten me to no end. Because they really have no application or very little to the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, 1400s. It's this era. This is where this stuff has become so popular in the last, since about the 60s. I mean, the, the whole charismatic movement, which jumped denominational lines beyond Pentecostalism to where now there are charismatic Catholics and charismatic Baptists and charismatic Lutherans and, charism and all this claiming to be able to raise the dead, cast out demons, etc. Now, coming back to the point I was going to make, uh, those who are in this movement, one of the things that, and I don't want to just paint with a broad brush, but one of the things that is not uncommon in this movement is for people to convince themselves that this is really happening when it's not happening. I mean, it's just, uh, just this morning I was talking with a gentleman who, who, uh, uh, who knew, had a friend, uh, uh, not a close friend, but who died of cancer, whose spouse was really into the signs and wonders movement and uh, believes that God always heals. It's always God's will to heal, and he heals every Christian. And her husband died of cancer, godly man, prayed for, so that totally blows open her theology, blows it apart, and yet she still believes that theology today. 
Still believes it's always going I don't know how she rectifies losing her husband to cancer if her theology says it's always God's will to heal and he will always heal if you, if you call on him and name it and claim it, etc. So there is a lot of, and this is a, this is a harsh term, and I don't know what other term to use. I don't, want to, I don't mean it to be harsh, but I'll use this term. There is a lot of self-deception in this movement to convincing yourself you know, that uh, like when I can remember as a teenager going to, and I don't want to just get anecdotal here, but going to a faith wonders thing and uh, a guy that said that, you know, he had lost some of his fingers, but God miraculously made him grow back. So it's like, well, I want to see this. And I go see, and the guy doesn't have any fingers. But he said, oh, it's because you don't have eyes of faith to see them. I mean, what self-deception to say, yeah, they did. God miraculously grew my fingers back when he doesn't have any fingers. So I think some of this could, have, could be demonic, but some of it could just be self-deception, convincing themselves. Oh yeah, we're casting out demons and we're doing all these wonders. And they convince themselves they're doing them when in reality they maybe aren't even doing them. And they'll hear the Lord say, I never knew you. So the only explanation for this is not that they're lying. That's the whole point. The only explanation is not that they're lying. They either maybe really believe they were doing this stuff or, or Satan and demons enable them to do it, but uh, it's not all just uh, complete false claims. All right, next question says this, uh, in your experience helping people in their walk with the Lord, what are some reasons people don't feel close to him and how can a person feel closer to God? Uh, again, appreciate the spirit of the question and what seems to be behind it, so don't take offense uh, when I say this, but I think, uh, in a sense, you're asking the wrong question because there's really nothing in Scripture that would tell you that you need to feel closer to God. Because the reality is this, again, this is just, it, it can come across as anecdotal just because you have ex- these kinds of ministry experiences that it proves the point. It doesn't prove the point. But, but through the years, I've known lots of people who really believed and were convinced they were close to God, but they they uh, convinced themselves of it, and they weren't close to God. I mean, I've had people, I know, you've heard me share these illustrations. I've had people tell me, for no biblical reason, God is leading me to divorce my spouse, and I feel a real peace about this. You know, God is, and whenever I hear that, I, I don't want to be harsh, but I just say, you know what? I, I've been praying about robbing a bank lately, and I have a real peace about that. You see how silly that is? Well, why would you pray about robbing a bank? It doesn't matter what you feel. It's wrong. And in the same way, people can convince themselves that they feel very close to God. Um, and so if you're looking for an experience or looking for a feeling, you're, you're already going the wrong direction. Um, and instead, what you need to understand is what does God's Word say about being, uh, you know, walking with the Lord, being close to the Lord. And that's what your target is, what Scripture says not to have a certain experience or a certain feeling. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not throwing emotions out, and I'm not saying that if your confidence is that you are walking with the Lord and you're close to the Lord and your confidence is based on the truth of Scripture, then there should be an accompanying joy and a, a, an accompanying excitement or whatever. So uh, I, I'm not, again, throwing out or, or totally disregarding any feelings because God has made us as emotional beings. But if that's your target to have a feeling, you're gonna, it's going to be wrong 
headed. It's going to, you're going to be going the wrong direction. Instead, see what Scripture says, how we come to know the Lord, first of all, how we walk with the Lord, how we please the Lord, and walking in a way that is in accordance with what God has specifically stated should produce a joy within our hearts. So uh, what are some of the reasons people don't feel close to him? They could be myriads of, there could be myriads of, of reasons. Uh, and on the other side of the coin, there could be lots of people who do feel close to him, and they, frankly, they're not close to him. Uh, how can a person feel closer to God? Well, don't try to feel closer to God. Do what Scripture says, James 4, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a statement. If you draw near to God through what he says in his word, confession of sin, obedience, he draws near to you. And whether you feel like it or not, you can, by faith, know that you are close to God. All right, next question says this. Um, so does the practice of infant baptism in some churches take the place of circumcision in their theology? Then uh, sort of uh, parenthesis, I heard R.C. Sproul speak on this, and he says he still believes in believers' baptism, but it seems that many who are baptized as infants are never baptized as believers later on. Very good question. And I will, I will be honest and say this is, it's really awkward for me to answer this from this standpoint. Um, you know how diverse the body of Christ is on this issue. And you mentioned R.C. Sproul. I think there are few men for whom uh, that I have as much respect as for R.C. Sproul. I don't know of any man alive who can speak better, clearer, uh, more definitively on the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone than R.C. Sproul. I mean, he is a brilliant th theologian, godly man. I, I, love, I love his material. I've, for years, for, I don't know, 35 years, I've listened to him. Uh, I've read him and others, not just him. Uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, one of the books that impacted my life. It'd be in my top five. Uh, so it's really awkward for me to answer this, and yet, you, you know, we can't ignore the elephant in the room. So I, I'm not saying I wish you hadn't asked it, but I just want to acknowledge that it is awkward because I do not want to come across at all disrespectful toward anyone like an R.C. Sproul or, uh, or any, anyone who holds to a different view. But to answer your question, so that is sort of a preface, yes, you have hit the nail on the head that the, the attempt— to theologically defend infant baptism, the, 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 the attempt to defend that theolog theologically does come down to a parallel in the minds of those in this camp between circumcision and baptism. The, the, the rationale is basically this. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. That's true. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. That's true. Circumcision was administered at eight days old. That's true. Baptism should be administered at, not necessarily eight days old, but as an infant. That is the theological justification. Now, of course, one major problem you have is that in the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, was only administered to males. So if you want to be consistent, should you say that only baby boys should be baptized and not baby girls? It's certainly an issue that you have to think about uh, because it isn't an exact parallelism. And the other problem with taking that is that though there may be some logic to it, every single example in the Bible 
of baptism is with adults. You have in the book of Acts, now, beloved, understand this, because I've talked with some in this, this, you know, in this camp of infant baptism. They say, well, you know, the church, you just don't have any example. They admit this. You don't have any examples in, in the Bible because the church was so new. And, and eventually, though, there were these examples. And my response is, the book of Acts gives you 30 years of church history. So you're telling me in 30 years there's not one example of infant baptism? There isn't in, in, the, in the book of Acts. So it's, it's, it's an empty argument to say, well, it's just that the church was so new and so young. That's why we don't have the examples. No, you have 30 years to get one example. Here's the other response I've often heard. Well, there are passages in the book of Acts where they talk about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved uh, and be baptized, you know, and they have the word and your household. So here's the argument. Well, surely in the households there were babies. Well, surely in the household there were pets. So were the pets baptized along with the adults and the babies? I mean, that's, I'm being facetious. But what an argument on silence. Surely there were babies? We don't know there were babies in those households. Where, but the, the condition to the households in the book of Acts was the same condition for everybody, that you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should get baptized. So, I mean... Frankly, again, it's, it's difficult for me to address this because I know it, it, I could offend dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the other side. But frankly, I am stunned that this is still an issue in the church today when you have no biblical example. I mean, it's like the one book that was written years ago, and maybe it sounds harsh, but everything the Bible teaches about infant baptism, and when you open up, all the pages are blank. There's just nothing in there. There's just nothing in there. And yet it's still, and I'm so surprised at, at so many strong, reformed theologians like an R.C. Sproul, whose motto is sola fide, Scripture only. Everything we believe has to go back to Scripture. I agree. Show me one example of infant baptism. Show me one passage that, that specifically, uh, clearly promotes infant baptism. And I'm even surprised, frankly, that th we recently had our biblical counseling conference. Uh, so how many in the biblical counseling movement practice infant baptism? Because the biblical counseling movement is everything has to be based on Scripture. You've got to be able to defend everything scripturally. Well, how about defending baptism scripturally? So I, 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 don't, I don't understand why this is, is still an issue with with those in the Reformed camp saying, we've got to go back to Scripture, and those in the Neuthetic Council, we've got to go back to Scripture. And it's like, but when it comes to this issue, we're going to just use logic and assumption and white spaces in Scripture, and we don't have any examples, we don't have any verses, but we'll just keep doing this because this is what our denomination has done. And that's, again, I don't mean to be offensive, but it's shocking to me that it's still such a diverse issue in the body of Christ. All right, next question says, and this is from a youngster. We always have youngsters who turn in questions. What is faith or what is faith in Christ Jesus? Well, let me say what faith is not because this is an important place to start. Faith is not mental assent. It's not mental assent to facts. Uh, that is not saving faith. Uh, so when we talk about faith, since a lot of people assume, and, and not wrongly so, that a synonym for faith is belief, so, okay, it's just belief. Well, yes, it is belief, but again, not mental assent. Some synonyms that would be valid synonyms would be trust, 
surrender. Here's an interesting one. At the end of John 2, John uses the word believe. He says that there was a group of people who believed in Jesus, but he did not, literally in the original, he did not believe in them. But none of our translations translate that way. Instead, they say this, which gives you a real insight into what belief is. It says, they believed in him, but he did not commit himself to them. Or he did not, uh, some synonym along those lines. So that gives you a really good idea of what faith is. Faith in Jesus is not mental assent. It's trust. It's embracing. It's surrendering. It's commitment to Christ. That's saving faith. All right, next question says this. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And in verse 9, Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So the question is this. Dear Pastor Brian, Romans 7, 9 says, I just read it. There's a sense in which we're all born dead in sin because of Adam. Example, Ephesians 2, 3 says that. So in what sense does Paul mean he was alive? Or is he even talking about just himself or humanity generally prior to receiving the law? Uh, Great question. And I would say this. Romans 7 is also a debated passage as to what Paul is describing as far as what phase of his life. So without getting into that, because there are a few views on that, uh, let me just say that regardless of your view, Paul's point is still the same in Romans 7, 9. Basically what he's saying is this. He has already said back in chapter 3, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law, the primary purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. Now, by the way, that's true not only for justification, it's true for sanctification. That the law reveals our sin so that we'll turn to Christ for justification. The law also reveals our sin on a heart level so that we recognize what we have to take to Christ for sanctification. So what Paul is basically saying here, beginning in verse 7, is this. Uh, Let me paraphrase it, and then we'll walk down through it. Basically, what he's saying is, I thought I was doing pretty well until I really understood what the law of God said, and it killed me. I mean, when I understood it at the heart level, it totally crushed me. I thought I was fine. Now, again, some say he's talking about pre-conversion. Others say he's talking about as a Christian. Still, his point is the same. He says, Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? See, he's just been making some really strong statements about the law is no longer over us. We're free from the law. We've been freed from it. So naturally, you might assume, well, is the law a bad thing? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. And there he's telling us the purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. See what Paul is saying there? In other words, hey, I thought I was doing fine because I never stole from anyone. So self-righteously, I thought I was fine until I realized that the law says, not only should you not steal, you shouldn't covet. You shouldn't want what someone else has. And that killed me because, you know, on a heart level, maybe I never stole, but I sure wanted what other people had. So the law just destroyed me at that point. It killed me. So that's what he's saying here. And then he says, But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Again, this is self-evident. I've used this illustration many times in the past. There is something about us. It's not the law's problem, but there's something about us that when we're told what we shouldn't do, we want to do that very thing. It's like walking through a park. You see a park bench, wet paint, do not touch. 
How many times have you touched it or wanted to touch it? It's the way the law works, but it's not the law's problem. It's our problem. So sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, when there wasn't a law, there was nothing that sort of I was provoked by. And again, Paul's not blaming on the law. He just says, when I was ignorant, there was no law in place. There was nothing provoking. I thought I was fine. But man, all of a sudden, when the law is in place and God says, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't think this or you shouldn't want this, man, it's just now I've got this, this, this all manner of evil desire is just churning. Apart from the law, sin was dead. It doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner, but he wasn't conscious of just how sinful he really was. And that's why he says in verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So again, just in paraphrase, he says, I, you know, I thought I was doing fine, uh, but without the law, when, until I really came to understand the law of God, that it doesn't just deal with externals, it deals with the heart. And once I realized that, the commandment came, and I understood the law of God, really what it means, then it, sin revived, this evil desire came up, and it just destroyed me, just killed me. And you say, well, that sounds pretty bad. No, that's exactly the point to which we need to be brought for justification and sanctification. We need to be brought to that point for justification so we don't trust in ourselves or the law. And even in sanctification, we need to realize our utter inability. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing so that we don't trust in our own law keeping for sanctification. So that's what I believe Paul is saying here in verse 9, is that the law, nothing wrong with it, but Man, when I finally, when it came along in my life and I understood it in its depth and what the Lord meant, it just destroyed me at that point. Just killed me. All right, next question says this. Um, can you explain the difference? This is from a youngster also. Can you explain the difference between Jesus and God? Who do I pray to? I believe that Jesus Christ is my God, but do I call him Jesus or God? All right, several questions there. First of all, the difference between Jesus and God. You are right that Jesus is God in the sense that Jesus is deity. But Jesus is not God in the sense that he's not the same person as God the Father. In the triune Godhead, there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are deity. They are thus equal in their essence, but they are distinct persons. So when you say, can you explain the difference between Jesus and God? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is God in the sense of he's deity, but he's not the same person as God the Father. So who do I pray to? Well, biblically, uh, there are a couple of examples of prayers to Jesus, but most prayers in the New Testament are directed to the Father through the Son. So I would say that by and large, we pray to the Father, not that it's wrong to pray to Christ, except what I have seen at times is that there are some people, because of their past and maybe their relationship with their human father, will not ever pray to the Father. And that's wrong. You need to work through that and differentiate your own earthly father and God because you, you, don't, you don't want to conflate those two. And I understand it's easier said than done. So I'm not criticizing anyone who's had a terrible dad and has to work through that. But if you avoid praying to the Father because of your earthly father, that's not healthy. You need to work through that. And if you're always praying to Jesus because your father was an abuser or whatever, that's something you've got to sort through. So, uh, so to whom do I pray? Well, you pray to the Father. Not wrong to pray to Jesus, but almost all praying was to the Father. And then it says, I believe that Jesus Christ is my God. That's great. That's right on. 
Do I still call him Jesus or God? Well, you would call him Jesus because calling him God would probably communicate the idea that you're calling him God the Father or the same uh, as, as God the Father. And he's not the same person as God the Father. Okay, I hope that didn't muddy the water, but uh, good, very good question. All right, next question is Genesis 20. We've got two more here, so we'll be okay on time. Genesis chapter 20. Verse 16, this is after Abimelech had taken Sarah because Abraham was afraid. You, you know the story and said, that, you know, they're going to kill me if you don't say you're my sister. And so Abimelech takes her, but God preserved her purity. And then when it comes out that God is really, you know, coming down on Abimelech, uh, he realizes what has happened. So in verse 14, Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham. He restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And then Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then Sarah, then to Sarah he said, Now, the question is this. Let me read the question, then I'll read this verse. Please explain what is meant by a covering of the eyes, which is literal in the Hebrew in Genesis 20, 16. But your version probably won't say that. Very few versions here tonight will say that. Maybe two or three. But most of the versions are going to render it a little differently. And so the question is, what is meant by a covering of the eyes in Genesis 20, 16? What kind of reproof is this? Because the authorized version reads this way. Then Sarah, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this is literally a covering of the eyes for you to all. And then the last phrase in the, in the authorized version says, Thus she was rebuked. And even the New King James has that with a marginal note saying, Justified or vindicated. Well, without getting too technical, really the, the question you have is just merely a translation issue. The, the King James has stayed with the literal rather than recognizing this figure of speech. All the other English versions render it. Instead of saying this is a covering of the eyes, which you can see that picture. It covers the eyes of everyone else. That is, it, it, you're no longer seen as guilty before anyone else because their eyes are all covered now. They've cut, the, the guilt has been covered. So you can see where that picture comes from. But that's why all of our English translations, other than the authorized, says, um, indeed, this vindicates you. And then the last phrase, this was fascinating. I looked it up in the Hebrew this afternoon. Thus she was rebuked. Um, in the hifil, this is really technical, but in the hifil, in, in Hebrew, this word does mean reproved or rebuked, but in the nifal, it means vindicated, and this is nifal, and so the translation rebuked is not the best translation. It should be translated, she was vindicated. She was proven to be clean. She, she was not at fault in this, and God preserved her. So, uh, other English translations would sort of clear that up for you. It is your vindication before all, before all and before all men you are cleared, is the, the rendering there. All right, last question says this. Based on Nehemiah 1, 6 through 9 or so, uh, Franklin Graham recently asked us to confess the sins of our forefathers, our nation, etc., as well as our own. Uh, on, in what sense can we confess the sins of people other than ourselves? Daniel did this also in Daniel chapter 9. Yes, he did. 
Uh, by the way, footnote, I love and appreciate Franklin Graham, as do I. So I appreciate what you're saying. You're just asking the question based on his actions, not putting him down, et cetera. And by the way, I heard part of the, I don't know what it's called. I, I tapped in live to him up in Helena on Tuesday and listened to part of it too, so I, I know what you're referring to here. Uh, the, the, the mistake here is, is paralleling Nehemiah and Daniel praying for their people Israel and assuming we can do the same thing for our nation when that's not the parallel. Remember, praying for the people of Israel, that was praying for the people of God. So the people of God today is not America. The people of God today are the church. So if you want to pray similar to what Nehemiah did or Daniel did, then it's not so much that you're praying for the sins of our forefathers and our nation. If you want to pray in that way, then if you're praying like Nehemiah did, our people have, have not been faithful to you, then you pray that about the church. Oh, Lord, we as a church have not been faithful to you. And you're using it broader than just our own church. You're talking about the, the, the family of God, or at least the, the circle of the family of God, not that everyone in the church is a believer. But that would be more of a parallel. So if you want to try to par parallel Nehemiah 1, Daniel 9, it would be praying that we as a church at large have gotten way off course, and we have. And we as a church have not been obedient to your word, and we have. And, Lord, we recognize that that, is, as your people, or those who are called your people, just as Israel was called your people, that's the parallel. But to think that you can pray for our forefathers in our country, and somehow that does something, like forgives them, or somehow that, that there's just no biblical verse you can use to defend that. As you seem to indicate here, when it comes to confessing sins, you can only confess your own sins for forgiveness and cleansing. Now, you can acknowledge, acknowledge sin that, you know, our forefathers have sinned in this country and we've, we've, you know, walked away from you. That's fine to acknowledge that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you think by confessing the sins of our nation that that's going to do something, you can't defend that biblically. You just can't find a verse that would defend that. And the parallel is not, as I said, like some people try to make between Israel and America, if, the, if you want a parallel, it's between Israel as the people of God and the church as the people of God and the failings of both entities. So that, if you want to confess something and acknowledge it, that would be more of a parallel. All right, great questions. Lord willing, we'll do this next month. So let's, someone hesitated for me to stand last month, but we're going to stand and close in prayer, all right? Let's do that. Father, it's been a great Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to be together, to uh, be with your people, to fellowship, to look at your word. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, interact, to wrestle through things. And so, Father, continue to grant us insight into your word. And may we be willing to be as we claim to be, and that is having your word as our authority. Because for all of us, it's so easy for us to hold on to things that, je that we can't, just can't defend from Scripture. So force us back to your word always. Drive us back to your word always. And may all that we believe and all that we teach and all that we practice and all that we proclaim be uh, very, very clearly defended and promoted in your word. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.